And she's looking at these miraculous signs and things that are happening around her. And she's considering what does it mean. And here in this song, we get a glimpse of Mary's ponderings. We, we get a glimpse of what's going on in her mind, the, the interior workings of her mind, and, and what those treasurings of her heart look like. And what I find striking about this is, is how simple the text is. There's nothing here that's particularly profound or nuanced or, or, or difficult. She's not trying to be clever but how deeply saturated in Scripture it is. This is a young woman who knew her Old Testament, who had clearly been meditating upon and pondering the Word of God. And and so it just flows out of her. Her her speech here is is a ransacking of the Old Testament. Uh, If you start trying to go through the biblical allusions, every single line pops up and you can... You can find verses, but quite simply, she had imbibed the word of God into her heart. And now we see the overflow of that into her song. Before we move forward into that, I want to to pause for just a moment. And parents, your kids are more mature than you often realize. They are able to understand deeper spiritual truths than we often give them credit for. There is more going on spiritually with our young people than than we often think. Many times churches and parents, and, and we're all guilty of this to some degree, kind of take a bit of a patronizing approach to young people. Well, now they're just young. And, and have a bit of a condescending spirit in that way. God did not... He's coming to this young teenage girl and look at the spiritual depth in her. This serves as a fantastic model for us. Parents, raise your expectations for your children. They are created in the image of God the same way as we are. The things of God resonate in them. Spiritual truth resonates in them. Teach them the word of God. They need to be trained how to process the hard things in life. Criticism, peer pressure, ridicule, all of these things Mary is about to face in spades. How does she withstand? She sets the example here by taking in Scripture and reading her life through the lens of Scripture. Teach your children the Word of God robustly, deeply, constantly. So let's look at how that worked out in Mary's life. Looking at her song here, I I want to bring out three general points. There are three kind of general movements in the song that that I want to, to highlight here. The first one is going to be God's way with Mary, the way he deals with her. The second one is going to be God's way with his kingdom. And the third is God's way in history. So first, God's way with Mary. How does God deal with her. Well, the first thing, you notice the opening lines. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is where we get that title, Magnificat. Okay, the the Latin version, I'm going to slaughter it, would be Magnificat Anime Meo Dominum. My soul 
magnifies the Lord. My soul makes great. It exalts. That's that idea, that magnification. To make great. Mary's response to her blessing was to immediately turn back to the giver of this great gift and bless him and make his name great. Oh, it's a perverse heart that often makes great of ourselves if we are given a gift. Mary was not like that. She immediately turned back to God and turns to magnify him. And she does so earnestly. Not a perfunctory, why, thank you for thinking of me. No, this is a profound, you see it, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. This is a complete work of her soul and body and heart and mind and everything that is in her. This is the natural overflow of a meeting with the living God. She has experienced God's goodness and feels compelled to express it. After all, this is why Christians sing, right? It's not an accident that this is a, in metrical form. It's in a verse you see in the, the way it's written out there. It's, it's versified. It's like a song. When we have these overflowing emotions, how often do we turn to song? You know, people fall in love. The first thing they do is start composing poetry and singing, even when they're no good at it. It's the natural human heart response to love. Friends, is that you? I don't mean you walk around like a cheesy musical bursting into song because I'm a Christian. No, I'm not talking about that. We're not talking about some cheesy, shallow thing. I'm talking about when you strip away all the cares of life. When you're left alone without all the trappings, what's the condition of your heart? Are you happy this morning? Does your soul rejoice? I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about the root. And at root, Mary's soul rejoiced in God, her Savior. That's what it is to know this God. That's what it is to know a Savior. You can't have a Savior and no salvation and not have a root of rejoicing. When life comes on you, is your first response to be critical and to point out other people's faults for fun and pleasure, right? Is that our first response or, or at root do we have a heart of gratitude? Joy and worship come spontaneously. They well up out of hearts that meditate upon and imbibe the truth. And that's why Mary is so delighted in her God because she knows him to be true. And so Mary reflects on her state here, and it is humble. Humble, that is to say, helpless. She is the lowest of the low. Not to say she's humiliated. She's done nothing wrong. There's nothing, she's not humiliated. There isn't some sin here, or or something along those lines. Rather, she quite simply is the lowest of the low, a young woman from a seedy town on the backwater of Israel. There is nothing to commend her. 
And Mary is not focusing on herself to try to, to, to draw our attention to her and to say, look at me. She is pointing out her own lowliness, sitting at in counterpoint to the greatness of God. It, it, it's, it, you know how you set a, a diamond on a black you know, velvet setting, whatever, to make it sparkle all the greater. And that's what she's pointing out here. She's drawing to mind, look at who I am or who I'm not. And is that not then all the more amazing what God has done? Her worship focuses not on herself, but on her living God. And her conclusion to this is, holy is his name. That's how she looks at God. Holy is his name. Now, holiness, we typically think holiness, the opposite would be, you know, sinfulness. And, and, I, and that is true. It's entirely appropriate to speak of God's holiness as opposed to sinfulness. But I don't think that's fundamentally what she's driving at here. She's not thinking about the sinlessness of God. I think she's speaking more to the idea of the uniqueness of God. What other God is like this? There is no God like our God. He does things no one else would imagine. He does them in ways that no one would foresee or expect. He is utterly unlike us. He is wholly separate. Who has been his advisor? Who has given him counsel? Well, lots of people try, but he's never taken it. He's never needed it. His mind is utterly greater and transcendent than anything that we can imagine. And when Mary faces this situation, she's essentially here saying, who would have dreamed it? God is unlike anyone else. He is utterly unique to honor me in this way. But that honor, that honor is not, in God's eyes, is not going to be honor in man's eyes. You might think it's, it's great, it's all well and good to honor God like this when you're getting you know, blessings and when things are going well. But make no mistake, this honor that is coming from God is going to make her life hard. This is going to make her a walking disgrace. In case you didn't do well in biology, virgins don't have babies. Not only is Mary an unwed mother, more scandalously, the father isn't Joseph. This is not an honor in the eyes of man. Friends, don't be surprised if God honors you with difficult circumstances. Don't think, oh, it must be that God doesn't love me or I've done something wrong. Difficult circumstances are not proof of of God's being against you. And Mary is example number one of this. She goes through difficult times And it is God's honor to her that she does this. And so here we have Mary sitting down and worshiping and marveling at such a God that would work in such a way with such a person as her. 
And then she turns from thinking about herself and her situation and and what this says about her and God's character, and she turns to think about this one who is coming. Because this is not ultimately all about Mary. Uh, She turns and she, she begins to think about others, and she says, his mercy is to those who fear him from generation to generation. This is going to be everlasting. This isn't just me. This this God that I am experiencing here is going to be true and, and is going to be the same God from generation to generation to generation to Phoenix, Arizona, 2,000 years from now. He is unchanged. And so what she's turning to do here is look at the way God works in his kingdom. Because who is this that is coming? It is a king. And kings have kingdoms. And so she reflects on what sort of kingdom is being inaugurated by this birth. What is coming to pass through the birth of this child? What are the implications? And as I mentioned before, she knows her Old Testament prophets. And it is pouring out of her. She is reflecting on what this coming Messiah is going to do and what his kingdom is going to be like. For you see, kingdoms reflect the king and the citizens. I lived in Korea for three years. I was constantly surprised because they did things I would not expect because they're different than me. They're Koreans. Their character and their, their, their social habits were different. And so I was often kind of surprised. Well, God's kingdom far different than just Koreans and an American. It's a chasm. And so that's what Mary here turns and addresses, is what does this kingdom look like? And notice that it is one of mercy for those who fear him. When we're talking about God's power and wisdom and grandeur and and all of these great attributes of God, the, the big, you know, powerful ones... We often kind of overlook mercy, you know, that, that, that's one of the softer ones. That goes over there with love and, and, and grace. But Mary here is putting them together. This is a merciful kingdom. It, it is to those who fear the Lord, who, who are going to follow after him and be obedient to him. They will find mercy. And her confidence in this coming kingdom is such that you notice how she states things in the past tense. He has done these things. And and to some degree, you can look back in Israel's history and and see that that those have happened in small amounts, but they always kind of fade out, too. And he has sent deliverers, but the deliverers are never final. She's looking forward. She's, She's looking at what this coming son is inaugurating. And she's so confident in it, she's able to speak of it in just that simple, flat, this is it. The, the miraculous births, uh, or conceptions really, of, of John and Jesus are confirming in her mind that now the long-awaited promises are coming to fruition. This is not speculation. She's not prophesying about something that might be in the future, or that she thinks or expects It's beginning to happen in her own body. And so Mary is beginning to rejoice in the coming upside-down kingdom of God. 
She is asserting that the way things are is not the way they will be. Never was that phrase, past performance is no guarantee of future results, more true. Past performance is no indication of what is about to come. This is revolutionary. And kings are not ordinarily revolutionary, but this is no ordinary king. God here is going to be bringing justice to the earth. God's kingdom is going to reflect his character the way that human societies and kingdoms reflect the character of those who live in those kingdoms. And so Mary points out three characteristics of this coming kingdom. How it's going to be different. How it's going to be upside down. Completely different than the world in which she is living and experiencing. The first one there is that the helpless are going to be protected. You see that. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattering the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. You have these proud people who are exalting themselves over others who are helpless. Pride is going to be banished in God's kingdom. The great will not lord it over the weak. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? You're not to be like the Gentiles. Their leaders exercise authority over one another. You, you are to serve one another. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. And he has chosen what is weak to shame the strong. No one is to boast in the presence of God. God says that he will live with those who are of a humble and a contrite heart. This is a kingdom for the helpless. It's a kingdom that exalts the humble. The humble are going to be advanced. You see that? It says, he has brought down the mighty from thrones and exalted those of humble estate. In this kingdom where there is justice, power and wealth or family or whatever advantage it is won't have any sway. In God's kingdom, the meek shall inherit the earth. The humble are going to be exalted. Also, the hungry will be satisfied. There will be no more unfulfilled longings in this kingdom. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich, those that think they didn't need anything, those that are totally self-sufficient, he sends away empty. So what do you hunger for? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Those who value what God values more than what the world values will not be ashamed. That, then, is the nature of the kingdom that God is bringing. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you came to make your mother happy or it's Christmas, I want you to know we're happy you're here. You are welcome, and we are glad to have you with us this morning. But I want to ask you, are you happy with this world? Does this really satisfy your heart? Are you content with this world? If so, this is heaven. Is this heaven? Is this really satisfying to the soul? 
I think down deep we all will say, no. No, we wish that the world were other than as it is. We know that there's something deeply wrong in the world, that there is injustice. Friends, look to the king. He's bringing a different kingdom. He offers a different kingdom. If you want to be in that kingdom, if you want to inherit that kingdom, you pledge allegiance to that king. That's what Christmas is about. It's that coming of the king into the world. But Christians, this kingdom that we're talking about is not just somewhere out there in the sweet by and by. It's not just something gentle in the hearts of of lowly people. This is supposed to be something that we're making real. This is supposed to be exemplified in the church. God has called out for himself a people and said, you are my people, now live like it. How often are our hearts led astray from the values of the king and we imitate the values of this world's kingdom? Oh, we need to repent of that today. Our lives should embody this kingdom. God's kingdom will be different. It will not have the sorrow, the hunger, the helplessness, and the humility or humiliations of this world, friends, that's a reason to rejoice. And that is the central part of Mary's song. She rejoices that this coming kingdom is on its way. It is as certain as the coming of Christmas. It will happen. It happens every year. This kingdom is going to happen. It's not an if, it's a when. And so Mary rejoices. Further on this idea, she thinks about God's way in history. What is the certainty of this kingdom? And so she looks back on God's way in history. How has he worked before? What has he done? What is the example of God's actions and behavior? Not just to her, not just what's coming in the future, but but what has God done? What is his character? And, And to that, she brings up Israel And Abraham, you see that in in verses 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. We can have confidence that God is going to do good things for us, not because we have done anything good. Not because we are of noble birth or worthy. Pause a moment and think, was Israel his servant here? His servant Israel, was Israel a worthy servant? The resounding answer is no. Israel has been scattered and broken. The nation was sent into exile. Even now they've been returned, but they're still not independent. They are humiliated by the Gentiles. They have been faithless with their God. They have failed. The servant has not gotten it done. They have broken their side of the covenant. We may get fed up with people and say, done with them. I've had it. I'm out of here. They've just driven me beyond my, my tolerance. God is not like that. No, God here is going to remember his servant. And specifically, Mary looks to this covenant-keeping God and cites Abraham. 
God made promises to Abraham. He promised him that he would have a son to carry on his name. And so it was that that Abraham was the father of the Jews. But more than that, let me remind you of those verses where God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him that dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now God in the birth of this son is making good on those promises. He is sending the true servant who is not going to break the covenant. He is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. This is going to be a blessing not simply for Israel, but for all nations, all families, at all times, to all generations. This is for us. All families will be blessed. And so it is, the truth that was promised to Abraham is coming to pass. The eternal Son of God was clothed in flesh in a virgin's womb. He lived a sinless life. He died a completely unwarranted death. But in so doing, he carried away the guilt of his people. He bore their humiliation, their guilt, their shame, so that he might be merciful to them. And though his body was destroyed and killed and he was put into a grave on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And God did not just raise him from the dead. God exalted him to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high and has given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Friends, this is a unique God. Nobody else thinks that up. That is why Mary rejoices. But in conclusion, I want you to consider verse 56. It says, Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Well, that seems kind of anticlimactic. Could have just left that off, Mark. Doesn't make your point. It's not even quite clear what Mary is doing here. Did she stay with Elizabeth through the birth of John? Did, did she leave before? Well, that, we don't even know. It's a bit ambiguous. But I want you to notice something here. From the mountaintop experience that Mary has been having, she's talked to an angel. And then she goes and she's able to talk to Elizabeth and, and Zechariah, who've also talked to an angel and experienced a miraculous conception. From that mountaintop experience where she is able to share her heart and experiences with people who understand her. They get her. They know it. They support her. They are encouraging. From that, she is heading back to Nazareth. And in Nazareth, there is going to be no godly support of people like this. She is going back to disgrace. She's going back to difficult times. She's going back about four months pregnant. And you can bet it's going to set the tongues wagging. (laughs) We thought she was a good girl. Sometimes the days after Christmas are a letdown. The glow, the Christmas lights fade, the wrapping is out for recycling. Start making New Year's resolutions about how to work off all that sugar that we have consumed. 
It's a time of letdown many times after Christmas. But the truths of Christmas are no more true the day after Christmas than they were the day before. They are no less true. They, They are equally the fact. God has come and visited his people. The fact that she had a supportive godly couple with her uh, you know, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now that she is going to be ridiculed and in a bad place, and did not change her standing before God one whit. He was equally with her. This was equally a blessing. He was equally merciful. All those promises of God are equally true. So I often hear people wishing they could return, retain those feelings that came perhaps when they were saved or, or when they've gone through beautiful times in their life where they grew spiritually and, and wish they could just hold on to that. It's like that Christmas experience. And I do too. I wish it was like that, but it's not. No, God gave us those ordinary times in life to slog through. He regards the lowly. He remembers those who are in difficult circumstances. God's kingdom is still coming. He has established it in his son. He is working it out in his church. And he is coming again. Praise God, he is coming again. And on that day, our hearts will rejoice. We will see him with our eyes. And until that day, let's teach our heart by the word of God to rejoice on the truths of God, to be nourished through those non-Christmas days, longing for that final great Christmas day when he comes again and that present that God has given man is richly displayed, God our Savior. Let us pray.